Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. And welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly in our topics this week, a debate over debates, no debate in the Kansas Supreme Court over abortion, and a census debate that some think is just nonsensus, plus roast and toast. But we start with our newsmakers segment and take a look at the Guadalupe Centers in Kansas City, their long history, their upcoming centennial celebration, and of course, Cinco de Mayo. Joining me is the Guadalupe Center's longtime CEO, Chris Medina. Mr. Medina, welcome to Ruckus. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So tell us how the Guadalupe Center's got started. What's the origin? Sure. Um, back in the early 1900s, uh, there was a shortage of laborers on the railroads. Yeah, World War I had been going on for some time. A lot of young men had gone to, to fight. And there was a problem finding laborers on the railroads. As a result, Santa Fe Railroad and the Burlington Northern went down to uh, northern Mexico and to Texas to recruit laborers. Uh, Mexico had been in a civil war for about 11 years as well. So then a lot of people from Mexico migrated to the United States. In fact, during that period, there was about a million people who migrated to, Kansas, uh, to the United States. Within those numbers, large numbers came to Kansas City. Uh, I think back in 1919, there was close to 15,000 that had moved here as a result of jobs and, and the railroads. And so the Guadalupe Center was designed to provide social services and some help for those people? No question. It was a settlement house for the Mexican immigrants who had come to Kansas City to work on the railroads. And it was very tough for them. You know, one, they didn't know the language. Right. Two, there was a lot of discrimination. Uh, a lot of people, when they first moved here, in fact, uh, when the families first came, a lot of them were living in boxcars. It was very difficult for those, uh, for those families. And then they didn't know the culture. Uh, and as a result, the center was started. The, the Catholic Diocese, there was a women's club from the Catholic Diocese called the Amber Club, who went out, reached out and started to provide a well baby clinic and social services for the new immigrants. You tried to help these people assimilate into the U.S. culture. That's, that was the whole process. How, how many centers exist? Well, we have today, we have about 18 different f facilities that we operate our program. And about. doing what kind of work? Well, we, what's ironic, we still do services for immigrants. We still work with immigrant families. We still uh, help. But uh, not just Hispanic oh, immigrants. No, no, we do not. We serve, in fact, within our uh, catchment areas, we serve whoever <laughs> qualifies for the program. So that varies from program to program. Uh, we'll serve most of, so we've identified seven uh, neighborhoods in the northeast area of town, as well as seven neighborhoods on the west side, Westport area, where is our primary emphasis. But I'll give an example. Our preschool at the Penn Valley College We'll serve over 30 different zip codes in enrollment with kids at that place. So and you do some health care, I think. No problem. Yes, we do. And we do outpatient counseling. We do some uh, teen pregnancy uh, intervention, working with young mothers. And so, we, yeah, that's a big uh, part of what we do and as well. And you're funded by various government funding and some private sources. Correct. We have federal funding, state, county, city, as well as a lot of private foundations here locally, nationally, and corporate contributions. So you're having a centennial celebration this year, and May the 19th, you have an event at the main library in Kansas City. Talk about what will take place. Sure. 
the center's history, it's, it's very rich. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't know the history of the Latinos, specifically the Mexican community here in Kansas City. Uh, our history is the history of the Mexican-American community in Kansas City. Uh, we'll have at the uh, public library on the 19th an exhibit that will be on display for a year. It's being prepared by UMKC History Department. Uh, it will also have a traveling component so that we can share that with other school districts uh, as well as uh, have people come to visit our sites. Uh, we're archiving uh, a lot of our information. We have uh, some of it already housed at the public library, and with the new stuff that we're archiving, we will hope to have all of that completed by early next year. Besides that, we're going to have a number of activities that we're going to unveil for this weekend for Cinco de Mayo. Uh, yeah, I want to ask you about Cinco de Mayo, which sure. is probably a holiday, if in fact it is really a holiday that is celebrated by all ethnicities, all races. Well, what are we celebrating? Well, actually, it's the defeat of the French army uh, in 1862 by the Mexican army. Uh, and what it was significant was because at that time, the uh, the, the French army was the strongest in the world. Uh, and they were trying to overtake Mexico. And they did for five years, in fact, after that battle. They were still in command of the country for five years. Eventually, they were ousted. Uh, and Maximilian, who was the emperor, was uh, executed. But that was significant, the fact that they could defeat and people. you're going to have some events at the various centers on Cinco de Mayo? That's correct. We're going to, at our main facility, which is located at 1015 Avenida Cesar Chavez, we'll start with a sneak peek on May the 3rd. We're going to have an opening exhibit at, uh, of some of, the, uh, act, uh, some of the display material that we're going to show at the library later in the month. We're going to have a unveiling of a mural, the first phase of a mural that we're putting at the main building of people who have contributed significantly for the growth and development of the center. And the third thing is we've got a series of videos that archive our history, one that deals with the history, another that deals with the education, one with uh, youth services, the, the culture act activities. I mean, the center's got a rich history, and the, uh, the first fiestas were held in Kansas City were in 1922. Yeah. There was also fiestas at the Country Club Plaza. A lot of people don't know that, but that's been documented. Those were in the 30s. All right, sir, got to stop you there. Out of time. Thanks very much. Good luck. Uh, happy Cinco de Mayo. Thank you. All right. That is Chris Medina, who's CEO of the Guadalupe Centers. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus! Jason Grill is the founder of J. Grill Media and a senior advisor at Paris Communications. Gwen Grant is president and CEO of the Urban League in Kansas City. Dustin Morris joins us for the first time. Dustin is a strategist with the Singularis Group. Welcome, Dustin. Ron Freeman is a motivational speaker and writer and appears for about the 800th time on Ruckus. <laughs> Welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming in. There is a veritable plethora, a superfluity, a surfeit, maybe even a profusion of mayoral debates coming to Kansas City as early as next week. The two hopefuls, Jolie Justice and Quentin Lucas, will face off at least a dozen times. Sometimes debates make the difference. Kennedy and Nixon in 1960, Reagan and Carter in 1980. Journalists love debates. But what about the public? Do folks in Kansas City care? Care enough to watch or attend? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important are these debates, with 1 meaning a waste of time and 10 meaning essential? What number do you think is appropriate? We'll start with Jason, then go over to Dustin. I think... Uh... Maybe a six and a half, Mike. Somewhere between six and seven would be appropriate. I think that 
you know, in a close race, which I think it'll be a horse race, and in an election where there's low turnout, it, it, they potentially, since they're being televised and on Facebook Live, they will attract more people. Those Facebook Live videos attract people for a long time after they actually air, uh, especially with the networks and, and what you guys do. And so I think it will have a little bit of an influence, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to name wreck, uh, door knocking, and get out the vote. Those are the three things they should be focused on. All right, so on. one to ten, you'd give it a six. and six, a half. Six and a half. Yeah. All right, Dustin, what about you? I'm going to go, I have to disagree, Jason. It's probably closer to a three. I'd probably give it a zero if there weren't so many of them. But since there's a dozen, that adds a couple points to it. But with the candidates, they're already known. Uh, their positions on the city council are well known. And the only difference I've been able to determine between the two of them are on go bonds. So having 12 more debates or forums, as they're calling them, I don't think that's really going to help voters decide. The ones that are showing up or the ones that are going to be watching have probably already made up their mind. Gwen, I know you watch elections in Kansas City closely and especially the mayor's election. Is there a significant difference between the two candidates rather than the obvious ones? Well, I think the way that they're trying to, di to differentiate themselves is that Jolie is running on uh, pretty much Sly James' coattail as the previous mayor and let's continue the momentum while uh, Quentin is wanting to talk about some uh, changes at City Hall, there's the possibility of, of a little bit more um, economic development reform. Um, there are other issues. I By think. that you mean not so much money given not to so corporations? Not so much. I mean, I, I know that he was, he played a role in, I think, uh, passing an ordinance to put like a 75% cap on, on tax incentives. But, you know, I, I just want to comment on the, on the notion of, of forums, right. yes, and, and debates. While they may not weigh that heavily, they do play a significant role in educating people who don't necessarily read the paper as much or follow the details about what's happening at City Hall to learn more about the candidates. And I will, you know, reference in the, in the uh, primary uh, candidate Alicia Kennedy, who was trailing uh, significantly behind uh, Jolie Justice and Quentin Lucas and others actually ended up in the top three based on her performance in those at those forums. By the way, is she endorsing anybody, either of the two? I haven't heard that she's endorsing anyone at this at this point. I'm sure both of them would like to have an endorsement for her because she ran very well. She ran a great primary. I'm going to ask a question. I think I'll try it for all of you. Start with Ron. If sure. you could just ask one question at these mayoral forums or debates, just one, what would it be? Uh, I'd, I'd want to know, what is it about you that's going to give confidence to the city, citizens of Kansas City that your leadership is going to take us in a positive direction? All right, Jason, what one question would you ask? Uh, I want to know, what is their one bold idea for Kansas City looking forward, and what is their vision to get it done? We haven't heard about bold ideas in this campaign. I'll hopefully hear more in the debates. Gwen? I'd want to know what is your substantive and comprehensive strategy to address the high rate of murder and violent crime in Kansas City. All right, Dustin, one question. Mine was going to be the same as Gwen's, but since she would be there asking, I would ask about infrastructure. I don't drive around in Kansas City very often, but the potholes, they seem to be getting worse. Yeah, it's probably worse. the safest <laughs> way to proceed is not to drive around Kansas City very often. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about it myself. I think I would say, what office do you really hope you get after eight years as mayor? What are you really running for? Good I thought so, or I wouldn't have asked it. Right, the Kansas Supreme Court has ruled that the state constitution, adopted in 1859, protects a woman's right to make her own decisions regarding her body, decisions that include whether to continue a pregnancy. 
Legal abortions have been part of U.S. law since at least 1973 in Roe v. Wade. Why is this Kansas decision creating so much attention? And we start with Gwen. Well, it's, I think it's creating so much attention because the, the ruling pretty much provides for legalized abortion uh, to, to remain legal in Kansas, irrespective of any p changes that might occur uh, on a federal level b with regard to Roe v. Roe v. Wade. Um, so basically, the Kansas they, they're upholding the Kansas Constitution as saying the woman has the right to choose and that uh, should uh, the, the, the current Supreme Court make any changes to federal law, it will not trump state law. So that's of grave concern to this very conservative Kansas legislature, which is pretty much apoplectic as a result of this decision, and is uh, now looking to uh, move to pass a, you know, to amend the Kansas Constitution, which will be a very heavy lift, meaning that no they will have to uh, have a two-thirds majority in the in the legislature and then also have a majority of the electorate to approve that legislation. Is there any likelihood in the golfing that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to modify Roe v. Wade? Well, I, you know, I think there there continues to be this issue, and uh, Trump has been able to certainly uh, stack that court in his favor. So if there is a case brought before the Supreme Court, it's likely that there could be some changes. Ron, uh, she <laughs> mentioned the possible constitutional amendment in Kansas. Do you think that's a strong likelihood? I think it's possible. I think it's really kind of shocking that a court would rule that you could legally dismember a child. And they're, they're, you know, we can dismember, we can have a procedure that literally tears a child apart, and that's okay with us. I think it doesn't reflect the state of Kansas. I don't think it re reflects U.S. law. <clears throat> you think about it in this context. If you uh, happen to be driving a vehicle and you're intoxicated and you hit a lady who's in a third month of pregnancy on the way to an abortion clinic, you can be charged with vehicular homicide. But we're going to say it's okay <clears throat> to walk well, in. We'd be charged with killing. Such, you'd be you know, charged with killing two that, people. Yeah, yeah. But 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 then that's true. That's such that's, a, that's a law. Alexis the law. Go read it. It's in, it's in the books. Is. No, it's There's not hyperbole. It's law. Hyperbole. Alexis you know, the law. Reality, go look it up in the Kansas. The reality is that the law, while Alexis it does law. address the Kansas law, does allow for the woman, in consultation with her medical professional right. to decide what is in the best interest of her body, and they, period. And, and, they, used really to, and they used to allow to us to be sold. You, they did. They used to allow us to be sold. It was wrong you, too. You fiscally conservatives who, are, who oppose a woman's right to choose then will not pass legislation such as Medicaid to help people who don't have health insurance to care for people after they enter yeah, this world. That's kind of a broad generalization. So, no, well, since you want to be hyperbolic in your not hyperbolic. I'm, I'm just saying what the law says. It's very clear. And you know, oh, by the way, Roe v. Wade didn't uh, make abortion legal. It made privacy a priority. It's That's the woman's right did. to choose. Dustin, does this ruling by the Kansas Supreme Court mean that any and all abortions are legal in Kansas? Uh, no, no, not at this point. I mean, it the ruling itself opens up a lot of can of worms to new lawsuits that might be coming, uh, specifically on uh, parental consent laws and other laws that have passed over the last decades that uh, groups like KFL have essentially pushed through the legislature. Um, but we're just going to have to wait and see how that goes. I, recently in Alabama, the, their house just passed a law that essentially outlaws all abortion in, in Alabama. Um, so I think a lot of the tension is going to shift towards that law there, and that might eventually go towards the Supreme Court. Jason, since you're an attorney, and I think the only one on the panel. I'm pretty sure that the Kansas Constitution adopted in 1858 didn't say there was a right to abortion. 
neither did the U.S. Constitution, but the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court of Kansas, have both found there is an inherent right. How does that come about? You know, that's a good question, Mike. I uh, haven't taken constitutional law in 20 years, so I can't answer that question. I will say well, that... Wouldn't they say that the Constitution actually evolves and our thinking toward the Constitution evolves as times change? Of course, yeah, it does. It does. It, it Is does that the change. rationale? It depends on where you are in the political spectrum. You think it changes more than others uh, with how you interpret it. But I think I think everyone made really good points. I think, you know, this this decision said it's a, it's a fundamental uh, right, but not absolute right. right. I think it'll work its way through the legislature. I assume there'll be a constitutional thing on the ballot in 2020, and then the voters will decide. But at the end of the day, it's I, I wonder. I wonder if I can get two-thirds of both houses to put a constitutional I, you know, amendment on the ballot. I don't think so. And I think, I think that if it gets to the, if it goes to a vote of the electorate, polling right now in the state of Kansas is that 54 percent of the electorate believe, you know, agree with the woman's right to choose. So it yeah, would probably, yeah, you know... With, back to your law degree, back yeah. to your law degree, Jason. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> can, can justices infer certain rights from other rights that have been granted previously or other cases that have been decided? Sure. precedent, right? So the, the right of privacy was in the federal constitution inferred from other rights and then from the right to privacy, the right to abortion was an inference, was it not? Well, it's a lot deeper than that, I think. But, but yeah, I mean, Ron may get points. Gwen may, everyone may get points. No, but, I I, but how they get to the decision that abortion is legal when it's not written in the Constitution is through things like the evolution of the Constitution and sure. the justices' you know, thinking the cases that come and the inferences yeah. of other, from other laws. Of course, yeah. All right, one final question about Kansas before we go on to other uh, issues. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling on school finance is likely to come out soon. Uh, what do you think the Supreme Court's going to say? $90 million a year is enough? $90 million more is I know the court, they're going to say that we need more money. That's just kind of what taxpayers need to pony up a little bit more, which, again, I think is the wrong decision, but that's where they'll probably go. Do you agree with that, Gwen? you think uh, the court will say... More money, more than ninety million. I honestly haven't kept up. Probably flip a coin. I think. Well, I think we've taken all this as far as we're going to mm -hmm. go. We'll move on from the state Supreme Court. We're going to move to the U.S. Supreme Court, where a decision is pending on whether a question can be asked on the 2020 census. Those who support the idea say it's essential. Critics call it nonsense. Maybe nonsensus. The question, did you get that right? I got okay. that, Mike. That was good. The question is simply this. Are you a citizen of the United States? This question was on the census until 1950. Early reaction from a recent hearing is that the court's conservative majority will approve putting the question on the 2020 census. So, Ron, what is the argument for not putting that question on the census? I think for a lot of people, the primary argument is Trump supports it. So we got it. We can't have him get in his way. But um, I think at the end of the day, I don't know what the argument is. I mean, it's basically a question of uh, are you an American citizen or not? I think the follow-up to that question is if your answer is no, then you, you're, you can end your survey now. Uh, but I do think that there's, it's reasonable, and I, I really don't understand the opposition to it. You can't end the survey there, can you? Even if you're not a citizen of the United States, you could be living in the United States legally. That was hyperbole, Mike. It uh, was. That's what... Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it we was. We see that from Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. I thought it was just Bali. I didn't know it was hyperbole. Uh, what about you, Dustin? Uh, what would be a reason for not including that question on the census? Uh, some groups have said that it it's going to lead to less federal funds going towards states that have a large population of illegal immigrants because less like people are less likely to respond if that question's on there. Uh, 
it's yet to be seen if that'll be the case, but there's always an undercount with the census anyway. Um, so I think that's kind of a red herring. Well, Gwen, why would somebody not be willing to answer yeah. the question, you know, as long as you were living in the country legally? Well, you know, the, the reality is that for, for immigrants, many who are living in the country illegally. Illegally uh, or legally? Legally. We okay. have, so we right. know we have people living in, in the On country. On visas, uh, yeah, right, sure, who, green who cards. Are legal, uh, in the country legally, and they, and they should be counted. Everyone should be counted. That is the whole point of the census, is to count everyone. Now, to, uh, to your question about why someone would be, would be fearful, is would be fear of the, especially the current immigration policies. But to your point about the, the only reason is that they uh, don't like President Trump. Some that's to, Yeah, that's totally ridiculous. The problem <laughs> here is, the, I mean, of course they don't like him, but the, the, the reality is that we, they, we have been, we have not asked this question since 1950. So why now is that going to make a huge difference? What they're claiming is that to protect Voting Rights Act, I mean, seriously, to, for the, the mm. Trump administration is really concerned about the Voting Rights Act. And then what correlation do you make to that? What difference does it make? But what, here's what really matters is that we get an accurate count mm -hmm. of the population in this country because it, 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 it speaks to how the Electoral College uh, is composed. It speaks to federal uh, funding allocations and how we divide up voting uh, districts. So that's the reason. And so if we can now say that we're not going to count these people, many of whom probably reside in urban areas versus rural areas, then this is this leads to furthering the Republican gerrymandering. Uh, but that's agenda. why we need non-resident. We need to know who's not a resident. Because if you're going to talk I about, care about is an accurate count for our cities, infrastructure, funding, health care. You know, right. we should be encouraging people. You know, there's a lot of issues with the language barriers, online access to fill this out. It's all done online, if, um, mm -hmm. and most of the country are correct. Online surveys. My, I don't think, I don't know. I, a ten, lot of it, I think Ten a lot years of it, ago, I filled out a form. We got it in the mail back then, right, Mike? Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it is done yeah. online now, and yeah. it's just, for me, it's just... Well, then, then you've got to drive people to the computers. Some people might not want to do that, might not right. be able to do that. So there's yeah. a lot of complexities, I think, and well, I think yeah. this is just another... Well, we have, we have non-resident tax forms. I mean, it's like it's not a big deal. If you're here illegally, that can be here. You can be paranoid. I would think but, if you're here illegally, you're probably not going to fill that out anyway. Do, do, you, do you think that if people who fill this out were illegal and, and just said they weren't citizens, that there would be people dispatched to their residences to remove them from the country? No. Absolutely not. You, do you, who do you, knows? Do you no, think that would be... I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> We'd hope not, but who knows? Are there other reasons than counting the number of people in the country to take a census? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, house districts, like we mentioned, how many people yeah, are... But beyond the things we've already mentioned. Uh, the funding issues we talked about mm -hmm. with... Uh, but also with health care, with yeah. Medicaid, Medicare, making sure every state. I mean, cities like Los Angeles and New York could stand to lose billions of dollars through this if it's not well, counted. Each person, Mike, I will say it's about $2,000, I think, in funding if they aren't accounted for. Economic yeah. impact. So you add all that up. And right. I've seen over the years interesting sociological and cultural studies be conducted based on census information, right. movement of people, Certainly. a variety it's, it's, of factors very, that are interesting important. beyond how it's, many it's people live in the country. To be to have the empirical evidence to to uh, study what impacts uh, you know are happening within our society, it's very important that we have accurate counts. Almost as important as roast and toast, <laughs> which is what we're going to head to now. Over to the soapbox, roast and toast, where the Rockettes have 30 seconds each to elevate, inculcate, or extirpate 
We start with Ron. Well, Mike, I'd like to toast uh, former Kansas City Chief standout Dave Lindstrom for throwing his hat in the ring for the U.S. Senate to replace Pat Roberts in the state of Kansas. I think a man of his integrity and, and character who has broad appeal uh, is a breath of fresh air to the, to the environment. All right, uh, Jason. So many uh, different roasts and toasts potentially today, but I, I'd like to roast. I work a lot in the media and with the media, and I have to roast them today for publishing uh, Patrick Mahomes' home address. Thought that was a, a little bit too much. A lot of people in Kansas City kind of knew where the guy was living or where he was moving to, but to give out his address on television, uh, really it's spurned more articles now on a national level. I mean, do we really want Raiders, Broncos, Chargers fans knowing where the Hall of, future Hall of Fame quarterback live in Kansas City? I, I thought that was wrong, and I hope that uh, – that, that doesn't happen again with our uh, athletes here in Kansas City. This was a local TV station, right? It was. Right? But then it, it spawned a lot of other articles and national pieces, so it, lives, it's gone mainstream. He now. lives close to you, doesn't he? Somewhere, somewhere around the area. Uh, in an affluent area. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dustin. Sure. Uh, this week I toast uh, my recent fellow graduates and the director of the Olathe Civic, Civic Academy, Brenda Long. Uh, it's a great organization, and I know a lot of cities also offer these similar programs where citizens can get together learn about their city, how it operates, and how it functions. And I'd encourage you, if you're interested in learning more about how your city operates, rather than just complaining about the potholes on your street, maybe you can find out how they get there and how they are repaired. Taking all the fun out of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gwen. I'd like to toast the life of the late Morton Soslin, who recently passed away. Who, Morton made a significant <coughs> contribution to Kansas City and an indelible mark on our community for the rest, you know, for life. I'm losing my words here, but I just want to say thank you to Martin for what you've done, what you left as a legacy for Kansas City and to your family for the significant contributions that continue in your passing. And finally, here is a gentle rose to Ron's favorite commentator, MSNBC's Chris Matthews. When asked what Joe Biden's strategy was on the opening day of his presidential campaign, Matthews offered this analysis. His strategy was strategic. <laughs> That's Ruckus for this week. We're back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckets and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night.